Welcome to Knickknack News. I'm Alex. And I'm Anthony. And my first story is Animal News. This is from the BBC. Uh, Staring at seagulls helps protect food, says scientists. I don't understand. The secret to protecting your seaside chips from scavenging seagulls is to stare at them, scientists have said. What? (laughs) Just yes. looking at so stuff? if you just look at the seagulls. Oh, looking at the seagulls, looking not at the, the seagulls, chips. Not the chips. Looking at the seagulls. Yes. Okay. And also, they, when they say chips, I think they mean fries because this is British. Oh. Okay. So, just heads up from here on out. When I say chips, okay, I mean fries. Okay. Uh, the birds are more likely to steal food when they can avoid the gaze of their victims, according to a new study. Uh, researchers at the University of Exeter put a bag of chips on the ground. Now, see, they say bag. Do you get fries in bags? Yeah, actually, you can't. Like a paper bag. Okay, Like perfect. how, uh, like Five Guys does it, kind of. Oh, like that. yeah. But they put a bag of chips on the ground and timed how long, uh, this is a particular species of gull known as herring gulls, uh, it, they timed how long it took for them to approach when they were being watched and compared this to how long it took for the gulls to strike when the person looked away. Uh, the gulls took 21 seconds longer on average when they were being looked at. <laughs> so wow. it just took them a longer time. Um, the, but they is, still did it. <laughs> this is my favorite part of this. The scientists tried to test 74 gulls, but most would not participate. <laughs> what? <laughs> Like, a lot of them just apparently didn't, didn't, didn't even go for the food. Okay. Um, this is a quote from lead author Madeline Gumas. Uh, Gulls are often seen as aggressive and willing to take food from humans, so it's interesting to find that most wouldn't even come near us during our tests. Some wouldn't even touch the food at all, although others didn't seem to notice that a human was staring at them. So there was a wide range of responses, it sounds like, from these gulls. Hmm. Um, Of the 27 that did approach the chips, 19 completed both the looking at and looking away tests. So from those 19 is how they got the 21-second difference. Okay. Uh, Gumas said the more daring gulls may have had a good experience of being fed by humans, but the study did not examine the reasons for the different responses. And she said, it seems that a couple of very bold gulls might ruin the reputation of the rest. (laughs) So... It doesn't sound like a very good study, honestly. Honestly, I was kind of going to say that. Yeah. Um, also, I have another question, too. Mm-hmm. Whose idea was it to spend a bunch of time researching this? I don't know. Somebody who was just <laughs> sick of getting their fries stolen by gulls, I guess. Like, let's do a study where we see if we can keep gulls from nibbling human food if we just look at them. Like, yeah. it's interesting. I mean, I guess Way to spend your time. it, it makes know. sense. Like, I feel like a lot of animals, if you yeah. stare at them, they won't, like, approach or, like, it's, a, yeah, it's it an intimidation caught, tactic. Right, right, right. So, I don't know. Hmm. All right. Well, anyway, I guess next time I'm in a situation where I have, like, picnic food or something on a you beach. You just stare at I'll all the birds. Stare, yeah. Okay. My first story is a random local news story. This is from Gizmodo. Um... Residents in a Manhattan Beach neighborhood of Los Angeles are irate that an owner of a house on 39th Street seems to be taunting them with a new paint job displaying two emojis on a fuchsia backdrop (laughs) on their house. 
According to the LA Times, the feud heated up when neighbors reported homeowner Catherine Kidd to the municipality for renting the house for short-term stays, possibly on Airbnb, which is an illegal practice in Manhattan Beach. Like, Mm. you're not supposed to do that, I guess. Um, Neighborhood news outlet Easy Reader News, which first wrote about the dispute, reports that the complaint led to Kidd being fined $4,000 for doing that. So... Back in May, Kid reportedly responded with a weird flex of garish artwork. <laughs> she had the house exterior painted pink and commissioned a local artist to paint two large emojis on the walls. On the second floor, a face with crossed eyes and its tongue sticking out, and on the first floor, a face with crossed eyes and a zipper mouth. <laughs> and both emojis have long eyelashes. So there's a little bit more to the story, but here's the, the photo of how I she painted her house. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I would be so mad. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) um, Susan Wheeland, a neighbor who reported kids vacation rentals. She's one of the people that reported that the neighbor was doing this stuff. Uh, believes the artwork is a personal <laughs> affront. Quote, I feel like I've been directly attacked with my eyelash extensions, Wheeland told Easy Reader. Oh, it's definitely directed. I had them done here in Manhattan Beach, and they did them way too big, and now it's painted on the house. <laughs> Wheeland told the news outlet she wept the first time she came home from a long trip to see the emojis facing her house. Um, she feels like she's being bullied by the neighbor. Because of the emojis. I mean, um, she also got this woman fined for $4,000, so... Uh, yeah, it's like, Sounds well, pretty even. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't... Um, Kid denied to the local outlet that the emojis were supposed to resemble Wheeland. She just called the residents, my happy house. Like, she was just like, oh, I just wanted to do this. But, like, the neighbors are all like, she's doing this as, like, a response to, to us. Um, the LA Times reports that multiple neighbors have complained about the paint job to city officials to no avail. According to the Times, some concerned neighbors reportedly plan on expressing their frustration at a city council meeting. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm just like If it is to know. if it is I, to make fun of that one person, that is so petty. I know and it's amazing. It's, <laughs> it's really petty. At the same time, like you got this person fined four thousand dollars. Four thousand. And her response is like she painted her house weirdly. Like, and yeah. you're, why are you upset about that? Like, honestly, even yeah. if it was directed at her, I'd just be like, okay, like right. you painted your house. Like, yeah. that's so weird. But okay, like I don't know. Like she was like crying because the person put emojis on her house. Like, this whole thing is just like wow. Just like, like everybody needs to relax. Everyone just needs to. <laughs> needs to calm down calm down everyone <laughs> goodness gracious stop worrying about what other people are doing and yeah. maybe just worry about yourself yeah, yeah. that's my response i think that would be thing. i think that'd be good advice in this situation <laughs> yeah <sighs> my next story is science news this is also from gizmodo uh A Mexican physicist solved a 2,000-year-old problem that will lead to cheaper, sharper lenses. What what types of lenses? Like camera lenses. Pretty much any kind of lens, actually, it sounds like. Um, So (laughs) this gets a little technical, but I think it's interesting. Uh, Maybe that's just me. We'll see. Uh, (laughs) It's a problem that plagues even the priciest of lenses manufactured to the most exacting specifications. The center of the frame might be sharp, but the corners and edges always look a little soft. 
The problem has existed for thousands of years with optical devices and was assumed to be unsolvable until a Mexican physicist developed a formula that could revolutionize how lenses are manufactured. Uh, On paper, a curved glass lens should be able to redirect all the rays of light passing through it onto a single target known as its focal point. But in a phenomenon known as spherical aberration... I'm sorry, (laughs) differences in refraction across the lens, as well as imperfections in its shape and materials all contribute to some of those light rays missing the target, especially those entering the lens near its outer edges. So like the whole point of a lens is to focus light into a single place, but because of just these like differences in refractions and the fact that not everything is an exact perfect sphere, like you run into this kind of thing. Okay. Um, so new improvements in design and manufacturing, including the use of additional aspherical lenses that can help counteract and correct the spherical aberration effect, mean today's uh, lens building techniques come very close to producing uniformly sharp images. But because they don't have a perfectly spherical shape, they can be very expensive and difficult to manufacture and design. Hmm. Whew. But that's all going to change <laughs> thanks to Rafael G. Gonzalez Acuna, a doctoral oh, oh. student at Mexico's Tecnológico... Oh, boy. Te- Tecnológico... Hmm. You're doing good. A doctoral student at Mexico's Tecnológico... That's it. Tecnológico de Monterey. <laughs> <laughs> After months of work, he managed to come up with a mind-melting equation. Their words, not mine. Um, but I'm going to show you a picture of this equation and yeah, it might be mind melting. Um, but it provides an analytical solution for counteracting spherical aberration. It doesn't matter the size of the lens, the material of it's, that it's made from or what it will be used for. The equation will provide the exact numbers needed to design it to be optically perfect. Whoa. So yeah. What? That's why this is all worth, <laughs> all of that explanation was worth it. Cause like, this is so cool. He basically just, just solved this. In, in an equation that you are able to, I guess, like plug a bunch of stuff into. And it's a bunch of stuff. Again, wow. I will show you this. It is bananas. Um, but the breakthrough will not only lead to better camera lenses for professional photographers, but improved scientific imaging, which they say could lead to potentially new studies that are new discoveries just because we can see things more clearly. Wow. Um, and improve lenses in everyday consumer products like smartphones which will be cheaper too because this is like when you can produce something like this um it it simplifies those techniques that we mentioned earlier about like the additional lenses so anyway i'm going to show you this equation it is this might be scared (laughs) this might be a common like level of complexity for somebody who is a physicist but as somebody who is not um it's just kind of well, they said mind-melting, and I think that's that's pretty accurate. <gasps> Can I see yes, this go ahead. closer? Oh. Oh. oh, man. Okay. All right. Okay. It is, you weren't kidding. It it's is, mind-melting. It is insanity. Oh, my goodness. How many variables are in this? Or maybe I, it's a I, lot of the same variable, like, repeated. Multiple times. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. I, I, I think it might be a lot of... Some of the numbers are just repeated over and over again, but still. Oh. Yeah. Whoa. It's wild. Whoa. It's, like... Obviously, oh, it'll be... It'll someone be, just come up with that? It'll be in the like, link to the story, of course. But it's wow. basically the, just... These enormous square roots, like over other square roots, with a bunch of 
those inside of it as well. It's it's almost like a fractal yeah, sort of thing where you're just yeah. like, as you go there's, in, there's just there's smaller five and smaller. layers of like, everything's under a big square root, but within there, there's like 10 more. And then within each one of those, there's, it's, that's not totally accurate, but it's just, yeah, it's like one of those things. It is things. wild. <laughs> but apparently uh, you just plug in all your stuff and it, and it, I, I don't exactly, I have no idea how it works, obviously, but somehow it, it this is going to be able to be used to figure out how to manufacture these lenses. And hopefully wow. we'll be able to see short, I mean, if they're cheaper to manufacture, I can only imagine that places that manufacture lenses are going to jump on this yeah. as quickly as possible. Yeah, why wouldn't they? Yeah, of course. Um, but it's also going to be good for us, so. That's so amazing. Yeah. Except you know that phones will just be the same price, even though it's going to oh, be cheaper sure. to oh, manufacture this. Oh, 100%. So. No, We're not going to actually increase see the any benefit. Margins, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's not. In reality, let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> let's be honest about how capitalism works. <laughs> okay, my next story is health news. This is from ABC News. Um, not really a funny story, but more of a PSA. Oh, okay. A dengue epidemic has been declared in the Philippines in the wake of more than 600 deaths and over 146,000 cases of the disease having been recorded in 2019 alone. Oh, my God. Um, and this is a 98% increase from the previous year. Wow. So far. Yeah. So, um, quote, it is important that a national epidemic be declared in these areas to identify where a localized response is needed and to enable the local government units to use their quick response fund to address the epidemic situation, said Philippines Health Secretary Francisco T. Duque, the third. Oh. Um, that's a fancy sounding name. Yeah, um, very. So several other countries in the Western Pacific region, such as Cambodia, Laos, Malaysia, Singapore, and Vietnam, have been dealing with an increase in dengue cases and deaths this year as well, according to the World Health Organization. Um, but the Philippines has surpassed those countries in terms of cases reported. So they're just like the, at the highest level. So it's yeah. being declared an epidemic there. Um, so... Uh, This is another quote. Starting today, the development of health, together with other government agencies, schools, offices, and communities, will focus on search and destroy of mosquito breeding sites, the country's Department of Health said in a statement announcing the epidemic. This is one of the primary interventions to prevent and control dengue. Um, The World Health Organization says that it is imperative to act early to save lives. There is no specific treatment for dengue, but early detection, improved clinical management, and access to proper medical care for severe dengue can reduce fatality rates, they said. So, so yeah, this is a real terrible thing. Um, I, before I read this, I didn't realize like, like I'd heard of this and I've seen like stuff posted, like at the airport and stuff about if you're traveling certain countries, like they have warnings posted there about this, but I didn't know that many people were dying from it. Like, yeah, this is the first that I'd heard (laughs) of anything with dengue fever this year, much less ever. Um, It's been a It must have been a while since we've had something like this, like an outbreak like this. Yeah, like, I don't know what it is about this year, but it just looks, seems like, the I don't know, the mosquito populations are exploding and whatnot, and so it's just really bad. So, Yeah, so just be aware in case you're in an affected area. Just be careful. Yeah, or, um, or if you were thinking about traveling to the Philippines, maybe. Yeah, or... Don't do that. that just think about it before you go or take precautions. I Like, yeah, because there's no, there's not like a easy treatment thing they can give you. It's more just like, yeah, and I assume there's not a vaccine or anything. Is it, is it a bacteria or is it, of? I'm not sure. Um, that's a good question. I don't know. Yeah, I have, um, I have no idea. I've seen, there's, there's a bunch of like informational stuff online about it too. Like that you can read about. I'm sure 
yes, if you're listening to this, yes, go. If you're interested, go and <laughs> read all the details about it. I just know that, like, yeah, if you're traveling really anywhere that has, like, a warm climate, yeah. be careful about this. Because I know this isn't just in those countries I said. I mean, it's, sure. like, in, like, Central America and stuff, mm-hmm. too. So Anywhere where, where the climate would lend itself to it, probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whew. Yep. So just got to be got to be careful. Yeah, I'm, I guess Mosquitoes. I'm I'm just thankful that my mosquito bites are just itchy and yes, not not disease causing. Me too. So yeah. You know one of the nice things about living in Ohio is that like <laughs> we don't have a lot of like poisonous animals here or oh, like no, no, that we don't type have of much of anything. Like insects that are dangerous and different things like that. Yeah. It's kind of nice. I don't think any of the I don't think any of the rattlesnakes live this far north and I don't think there's um the copperheads, I think. Can they can they come this far north? I think so. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. the only snake that I know of that's kind of dangerous that can be in Ohio. But and then there's like the brown like, recluse, but we don't really get yeah. that up here either. Yeah. So, so Yay, Ohio. Nice. <laughs> no no dengue fever for so us. A little bit isolated from a lot of that stuff. So. Yeah. My next story is space news. This is from CNN. Crashed spacecraft may have left tiny but tough creatures on the moon. And you guess what they are? Are they bacteria? No. Are they those things that look like aliens? Yes. <laughs> what are those? Wait, I know you know what I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I think um, I think you're right. Okay, but I can never remember what they're called. Starts with a T. Oh, um, thermopile. No. <laughs> I don't remember. Just tell me. It's uh, thousands of tardigrades. Tardigrades. Yes, yes. Which are also known as water bears, or I've never heard this one, moss piglets. What? <laughs> I've never heard that either. I I've love. Heard, the, I've I heard love, water bears though. I love tardigrades. But not, not moss piglets, but uh, they were on board the uh, Bear Sheet spacecraft when it. Uh, crash landed on the moon in April. Oh, I didn't know. Wait, something crash landed on the moon. There wasn't in April? anyone in it. It was just these. It was. Well, I'll get into it. Oh. Um. So, I think you probably already know this, but the uh, tardigrades are incredibly hardy and can survive mm-hmm. extremely low temperatures and harsh conditions. And the Arch Mission Foundation, which sent them into space, believes some of them may have survived the crash, um, which actually seems quite likely, honestly. Uh, they're tiny animals no longer than one millimeter. They live in water or in the film of water on plants like lichen or moss, and they can be found all over the world in some of the most extreme environments from icy mountains and polar regions to the balmy equator and the depths of the sea. <laughs> These little guys can just go anywhere. Yeah. It's, they're crazy. Um, so I thought this was interesting. I hadn't heard of this. Um, this was an attempt to create a, quote, backup for the Earth. This nonprofit organization, the Arch Mission, sent a lunar library, which was just a stack of DVD-sized discs that acts as an archive of 30 million pages of information about the planet. They sent this to the moon. Uh, along with the library, huh. Arch Mission sent human DNA samples and a payload of tardigrades, which, oh. had, which had been dehydrated into space. Um, so they can be dehydrated, but then brought back to life pretty much whenever. Like, this is another property of that they have. Wow. Um, they, uh, they put the creatures into a state of suspended animation where the body dries out and the metabolism slows to as little as 0.01% of its normal rate. So they just, like, go to, like, the bare minimum to be, like, technically alive. Um, although the animals won't be able to reproduce or move around in their dehydrated state if they survive the crash, <laughs> they keep pointing that out, um, 
If rehydrated, they could come back to life years later. Uh, and researchers are hoping that along with the tardigrades, the majority of the information from the lunar library survived the impact of the crash. So it sounds like they kind of just launched this thing at the moon and then it just <laughs> collided with it. Um, but they, huh. they think it could be used to regenerate human life in millions of years if there's some advanced civilization that comes along that has that capability, I guess. All right. I mean, who knows? Okay. But uh, yeah, I thought that was interesting. And I'd take any opportunity to talk about tardigrades because they're... They're so cool and weird and interesting. Yeah, utterly fascinating because they just... They can just survive anything. Yeah. Well, and it just makes... Like, you look at it and you're like, that's not from this Earth. Right. It looks like a little alien. That crashed here on an asteroid and now just is on Earth as some, like, organism that just didn't originate here. Like, it just looks (laughs) that way, you know? Yeah. And they can survive in space, too. Yeah. So... So... If they survive the been. crash, then they're probably fine up there. Yeah. Assuming they're not just floating around or whatever. I don't know how they're... Maybe look. they're just floating around in space. <laughs> just ah. a bunch of little tardigrades. Yeah. yeah, I just I just think they're, they're just fascinating to me. They um, really are. But yeah, so they would have to be dehydrated in order to... Or I'm sorry, rehydrated in order to like be alive and reproducing again? In order to move again? and reproduce and that kind of thing, yeah. But they're technically well, still alive. Could, could they just, still... Do you think they could survive on the moon as it is now? Like, what do they Probably. use for nourishment? I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know. I feel like I want to know that. I want to know the answer to that. Yeah. Well, what if we, like, accidentally just populated the moon with tardigrades? <laughs> we look one up, up one night and just, like, does the moon look kind of squirmy to you? <laughs> the, no way we'd be able for to tell re- from here. For, <laughs> somehow they get big enough that we can see them from Earth. Like, what happened? They're just the... Turns out that that's all they needed is just to just be on the moon, and they like just gr- and they would just suddenly grow. Yeah, like something about the earth, some mysterious force about the Earth that like kept them from the the reduced gravity caused them to just like swell in size. These giant moon monsters now that checks out. It could happen. Yeah. Okay, my next story is science news. And this is another really technical sciencey story from Gizmodo, actually. Okay, wow. <laughs> so, They're getting a lot of playtime today. Yeah. Um, so, physicists Sergio Ferrara, Dan Friedman, and Peter Van Neuwenhusen will split a $3 million prize for their theory of supergravity, which drives much of today's physics research toward our understanding of the universe. I'm sorry for laughing at Neuwenhusen. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but that's my attempt. <laughs> uh, the break the breakthrough prize, like breakthrough as a proper noun, breakthrough okay. prize. Oh, okay. okay, is an annual award to recognize groundbreaking science, funded by Russian-Israeli billionaire Yuri Milner. Uh, though breakthrough prizes are awarded annually, special prizes can be awarded any time and need not honor recent work. In fact, the researchers behind today's award thought they'd actually missed the chance to win it. They were very surprised when they got the call because they actually invented this in 1976. Oh, wow. (laughs) So they're just getting awarded now for its impact, basically. Wow, okay. So I I included a little bit of the technical explanation of of this, but the article goes into (laughs) a lot of detail. I'm not going to go into that here. But 
Today, one of physics' biggest problems is that the behaviors of the smallest particles can be explained by the theories of quantum mechanics and quantum field theory, but they don't make sense when you apply the theory that governs gravity and the most massive objects called general relativity. So there's like two different theories that govern like really, really, really big objects and really, really, really small objects. Oh, okay. So like reconciling those two is something we haven't been able to do before. Yes. Um, uh, physicists had basically ended up with a lot of infinities in their theories that they couldn't get rid of. <laughs> Other, that's where we put all these infinities here. This is, how'd these get here? How, what? Who put square Other, root of infinity in my equation? <laughs> Other attempts to unify the fundamental forces of the universe ended up calculating numbers far too large for what experiments were actually observing for some of the forces. Supergravity was one way to reconcile these issues that seemed to work, and it was devised by um, these three scientists in 1976. So supergravity became an influential theory and one that has um, appeared in many iterations of string theory. So like today, it it has, over the years, it's been used in a lot of new theories and research that's happened since it was first like proposed as a a theory, basically. Um, So unlike the Nobel Prize, the Breakthrough Prize can be awarded to influential theoretical work that hasn't been proven. So like string theory stuff has won the award several times. So even though this isn't like a proven thing, it's it's impactful. And so, um, yeah, they got the prize for that. And so so it's a theory that helps to reconcile those two things. Like what I said, that's what that's what supergravity is. Yes. Okay. it's like a. Yeah. So the name is confusing because it just makes me think of like intense gravity. It's so yeah, that's not it's not that. It's like <laughs> another way to think about gravity. It's this 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 the article went into like how sometimes people think about gravity in terms of like particles, like gravitons and stuff, even though uh, that's not really like a real like it's not a thing, but they use it in math to sort sure. of figure out how to equate things. This is like another version of that okay that somehow reconciles all of the laws of some really small objects and really big objects and that's really as far as i'm gonna be able to explain it because yeah. i didn't okay. it was very complicated it is probably <laughs> way above my head but but i was like this seems cool that's cool that they got recognized <laughs> like, for it like that they're like oh wow we thought we were never gonna get this because we, <laughs> we invented this in the 70s but cool like these three scientists like, it's nice it sounds like they're still alive like, to accept yeah it too, yeah they so. are yeah all three of them are um there's actually i thought the picture was kind of cute it was like these older like scientist guys on a stage just like super happy <laughs> i was like oh okay <laughs> yeah so that was fun super gravity all right it's time for breaking news the part of the show where anthony and i look for stories that were just posted today or just happened today and we read them to you on the fly Newsenhausen. Ready, set, go! Was that even the name? It was Neuwenhusen. You're close. Whatever. (laughs) Okay, I found this on Engadget. Uh, The headline is, Beyond Meat comes to Subway in the form of a meatball. Ooh, Subway is hopping a, on the bandwagon, huh? Hopping on the on, on the plant-based meat wagon. I just couldn't resist talking about 
another <laughs> one of these. I don't know why I'm so fascinated by them, <laughs> especially by fast food places that are adopting yeah. <laughs> plant-based meat. It's just such a weird Because well, it is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so Subway announced that it will test a sub with plant-based meat, which they're calling the Beyond Meatball Marinara. Okay. Uh, in uh, 685 North American restaurants this September, which is a lot of restaurants for a test. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the article noted it's far from vegan since it includes both Parmesan and provolone cheese. Um, <laughs> but it should hit the spot if you're only looking for a meat substitute. Um, they say a six inch sub will include 24 grams of protein, which is a pretty, pretty decent okay. amount. Yeah. Um, and there's no mention of whether or not the uh, Beyond Meat based sub will carry a premium price over its regular counterpart. Um, and that's really all that they had to say right. in the article. But, uh, I just thought that was wow. interesting. Did, I forget if we did we talk about a meatball version of this before. I don't remember if it was. Familiar, I don't remember if it was Beyond Meats meatball or Impossible Foods meatball or. But we did talk else. about something like a meatball existing. I feel like it's. I feel like we maybe did. Okay, maybe I. I don't know. I don't remember. We definitely it talked about like a ground beef like product, which I guess could be made to made into meatballs. Oh. I don't know if we specifically talked about meatballs. Oh, okay. Well, now we have. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, I found something on ABC News. Um, The headline is, Diver attacked by shark rescued by fishing boat full of nurses. Oh. So. That's um, that's lucky. (laughs) Basically, I guess this happened over the weekend. It was just posted today on on here. Um, A spear fisherman... Um, was attacked by a shark over the weekend in Florida and was saved by a group of medical professionals who just happened to be in a boat nearby. (laughs) Uh, The 40-year-old diver was bitten by a shark while diving near Key Biscayne on uh, Saturday morning, and his companions flagged down a passing charter fishing boat to help him. Um, And that boat happened to be full of nurses who were... (laughs) Able to assist him during the emergency. Oh, wow, this boat, it's full of nurses who specialize in shark wounds. Like, yeah, like it was a very strange uh, coincidence, but that definitely worked out for him. That's incredibly um, lucky. Yeah, so his arm was was really badly hurt. Like, he had, like, a mangled arm, basically. Ugh. And a lot of, there was a lot of blood and stuff. But, yeah, there were nurses in this boat, so they helped him. And sounds like he's fine now, so he's still at the hospital recovering, basically. Oh, well. But... Yeah. Well, we mean, should all be so lucky that if we ever get in a diving accident that we're immediately rescued by a nurse boat. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's pretty much the best case scenario. Really? I mean, the, other than that, like, like a boat that happened to have like a nurse, a surgeon, a doctor, yeah. like, a, <laughs> like all the, different the kinds of and an anesthesiologist. Just all there with like the same equipment as a hospital would have exactly. on the boat. Yeah. That would have been better, boat. but like, like a that's boat, the only but a hospital boat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, wait, why isn't that a thing? Why don't they just have hospital boats Probably that help people? This would be the only scenario where it would be useful. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Do people get injured on the beach for help? I guess not. I guess not. Um, <laughs> yeah. I must okay, have missed that mind. season of scrubs. <laughs> All right, that's our show. Thanks for listening, everybody. We post episodes every Friday. And as always, the links to this week's stories will be in the episode description. You can subscribe to Knickknack News on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever other app you'd like to use. And you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash News and on Twitter at, at News. 
All right. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.